Minister Shinzo Abe declared victory over COVID-19 in his country and declared the seven-week state of emergency now over. So how did a country... When asked over the summer why Japan had been seemingly so successful in defeating COVID-19, Finance Minister Aso Taro boasted that it was because Japan had a higher level of mindo than surrounding countries. The grumbles of disapproval in the diet chamber following Oswald's comments bespeak the controversial baggage of the word, which refers to cultural level or cultural standards, making Oswald's statement tantamount to the troubling claim that Japan is culturally superior to surrounding nations. To be sure, this is not the first time Minister Aso has sparked controversy for nationalistic public remarks. In January of 2020, Aso once again drew criticism for responding to a question about the international diversity of the Japanese men's national rugby team by saying, My hope for Japan is that it is recognized as a country that has existed for over 2,000 years as one country, in one place, with one language, one ethnicity, and in one imperial court that has continued unbroken over 126 emperors. But perhaps the loudest criticism in response to Aso's remarks about Japan's higher mindo came from South Korea, where many residents recalled how central the term mindo was to Japanese colonial rule, along with claims about the differences between Japanese and Korean mindo. How was the term mindo used during Japanese colonial rule in Korea? How did Japanese rulers attempt to use beliefs about differences in mindo to justify Japanese colonialism? And why does colonial rhetoric such as terms like Mindo continue to appear in East Asia and inflame such tensions between Japan and South Korea? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the place of Mindo discourse in Japanese colonial rule in Korea, I talked with Dr. Michael Kim, professor of Korean studies at the Yonsei University Graduate School of International Studies in Seoul, South Korea. I started by asking Dr. Kim to explain how the term Mindo was used during Japanese colonial rule in Korea. Okay, well, there's many aspects to this term. And as you say, it basically means the level of culture. But the way it was understood in colonial Korea is sort of the educational level of the Korean people. But Mindo also means many things beyond educational level. For instance, they would do a Mindo Chosa, Mindo investigation, which basically meant the standard of living and how much taxes could the population pay. So usually when they say investigation of Mindo, they're talking about the tax potential right, of a region. But it's also tied to crime statistics and how much crime is committed by a population. There's also very strong usage in terms of hygienic practices. For instance, many times, the Japanese colonial officials would say, oh, the Koreans have a high rate of communicable disease because their mindo is so low, they're not practicing the right hygiene. And there's also a really interesting use of the term in the sense of the ability to utilize proper technologies. So in today, like for instance, if you were into the reading into the literature of development studies, they often talk about appropriate technologies for a region. And so the Japanese use the term mindo whenever they're talking about how they would build colonial infrastructure for the Korean population, like railroads, for instance, yet the population wasn't using it properly. To understand the context, Japanese put a lot of money into railroad investment, but for the first 10, 15 years, they lost a lot of money because the Koreans weren't using the railroad. Of course, the fact that the railroads weren't really connecting all the places Koreans wanted to go to might have something to do with this, but they explained it saying that the Koreans have 
too low of a window. And so we kind of made an overinvestment without really thinking about the conditions of the mindo. And in fact, that's how they often described it, sort of like the mindo and the present conditions of a region have to be considered whenever we create policy or make investments into the colonial infrastructure. You're absolutely right. That's a term that I've seen a lot in colonial archives and my own research on urban planning and colonial soul. And like you're talking about with infrastructure, you know, railways in the rural areas, but even things like street improvements, right, right. Uh, putting in gutters and sewers and in even asphalt pavement. You know, it was always about a way of elevating Korean mindo or Korean culture. And, you know, the, the way that they're using the term almost, it's kind of creeps into this kind of civilization territory. You know, this idea mm. of, well, we have a higher civilization. Korean right. civilization is lower, almost in a social Darwinistic right sense of progress of civilizations. And if we were to compare this to, say, Western empires at the time, where they were using rhetoric about difference based on constructions of race, is Mindo basically the Japanese substitute for a racial difference in Korea? Well, this is where we get into a really interesting aspect of Japanese imperialism, in that in many ways, the Mindo discourse is kind of like Japanese implementation of the Enlightenment discourse in the West, right? So you're basically saying just levels of enlightenment. And what we're doing here is trying to raise the level of the people, raise the enlightenment of the people. And in fact, there's a number of Japanese officials who would say that what differentiates Japanese empire from the Western empires is that the entire purpose of our empire is to raise, elevate the mindo of the people, unlike the Westerners who would never try to do that. So in some ways, this mindo ideology is a way of saying that Japan is empire 2.0. Like we're trying to actually increase the standard of living of the people that we're ruling, right? But of course, this is exactly how the Koreans then critique Japanese empire. They often say, well, you claim to be raising our mindo, but actually you're not building us schools. You're not really encouraging the proper behaviors. Uh, You're actually not doing anything. (laughs) So it's kind of a two-edged sword in that the Japanese open up the way of rationalizing and justifying their empire, but it also opens up a huge area of critique where many of the Koreans are saying, well, fine that you say that you're doing this, but let's see the action. And they often saw very little action, right? Right. I think it was Partha Chatterjee talking about the the hypocrisy of the rule of colonial difference is that you have to maintain that difference somehow. You know, the idea of we're mm-hmm. assimilating the colonized people into ourselves. But if you assimilate them, then that kind of undermines your very right. reason for being there. So you have to maintain that colonial difference in some way. Well, but, but the other interesting aspect of all this is I find the Bindo discourse is most often discovered in the discussions over Naiji Encho, which basically means extending the Japanese system to Korea mm-hmm. and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's advocates who say that we should just put everything under the Meiji constitution, we should all have one economic system, political system, and so on, and rights as well. The counter argument is always that, well, Taiwan and Korea are not ready because of the low mindo. And in fact, how the Japanese differentiated the Koreans from the Japanese is through a series of investigations into Korean culture and practices and so on, where they specifically made very important changes to the legal system in Korea that didn't exist in Japan, mainly with inheritances and with the way the family name is recorded, for instance. The whole idea of the census is based on the head of households rather than individuals. Although, in fact, it is a system of individuals, but The idea was that, well, Koreans aren't quite ready for our advanced way of recording and registrating people. We need to let them 
maintain their own cultural specific, i.e. culturally backward ways of maintaining their social relations. And because of this, we cannot fit them into our system and therefore we must maintain separate systems. So Mindo discourse is really a major part of arguments against incorporating Korea into Japan. Another really interesting aspect of Mindo discourse has to do with the emergence of statistical analysis and data gathering by the Japanese. Now, a number of colonial historians have pointed out how the Japanese gathered so much information, but what's interesting is they gathered the most information in Taiwan, less in Korea, and even less back in Japan. Because in many ways, how you justify your colonial rule is you're trying to say, well, we're increasing something or making something better, and that's where statistics come into play. And so many aspects of the Mindo discourse is all about how to interpret the statistical differences between Japan and Korea. Recently, when the Japanese started talking about Mindo and COVID-19, the Japanese foreign minister actually talks about how, oh, well, look, the rates of death or the spread is so low, right? Uh, better than Western countries. And so this shows that our Mindo is better than Western countries. But what's interesting there is actually the Taiwanese and Koreans have even better statistics. And so right away, a bunch of Koreans as well as some Japanese pointed out, wait, aren't you saying that the Koreans have a higher Mindo now? And then, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, but that's exactly the way it was framed, right? You sort of cherry pick certain statistics to show that, oh, look, the Koreans have a higher crime rate. Oh, look, there's a much worse transmission of disease rate. And, and you would use this as a way of justifying and rationalizing your policies. And thanks for bringing the conversation back to the present day. You know, this isn't the first time that colonial terminology has come back and caused much controversy. Just a few years ago in the Olympics, I remember uh, there was a controversy when an NBC announcer referred to Japan during the opening ceremony as the guiding nation for the rest of East Asia. Uh, and even talking about Korea specifically, you know, kind of Japan setting the model for Korean modernization. And in doing so, he, he unwittingly recalled Japan's own racist wartime rhetoric of being the Shido means or literally the guiding nation of East Asia. And I mean, of course, this caused much deserved outcry in Korea. But, you know, in your opinion, you know, what makes references like these, whether we're talking about Mindo or guiding nation Shido Minzoku, what makes these so offensive in Korea today? Well, now we're getting back into sort of the major aspect of post-imperial rhetoric that much of the Japanese right wing still justify the empire as a sort of attempt to elevate the Asian people against Western imperialism, right? And so, of course, this goes back into the great East Asia co-prosperity sphere. The rationale for why Japan was supposed to be the leading nation was that they are the one Asian nation that had been able to Westernize, had been able to absorb all the modern technologies, right? And so that reference basically points to the fact that this idea is still very much alive in Japan today. And of course, the Koreans themselves have a very complex sort of interaction engagement with this idea. So on the one hand, the Koreans are always the first to point out that actually the Japanese just exploited us and didn't actually improve our situation much. But then there's also this sort of conservative Korean right-wing historiography that in some ways has absorbed some of the ideas that the Japanese actually improved our situation. And so today, they will often make arguments that are maybe not explicitly support the idea of Japan being the guiding nation, but will in fact acknowledge that the Japanese had actually improved 
the Korean economy or situation. This is where the whole controversy of this past historical legacy still impacts the way contemporary discourse is shaped. But of course, the critique of this is always that, okay, well, it's great that the Japanese had attempted to improve this or that, but the problem is you had to conquer the countries to do it. And of course, all the death and destruction that emerged from this idea of unifying Asia under Japan, you know, and so the consequences often disappear, right? And what's the actual history of what happened? You can talk about intentions. Every empire has an intention, but was it actually carried out? And that's where critics, of course, would point out that the Japanese may have done more harm than good in their attempt to be this guiding nation. I might want to point out the way that the Mindo discourse ultimately ties into the wartime mobilization and the wartime assimilationist policies that the Japanese implemented. In order to understand the relationship between Mindo and the war, I think it's also important to understand how something called the public sphere or sort of like civic culture is impacted by mass politics. And the chapter of my book is a study on mass dictatorships, where what we did was for 10 years, we did a comparative study of dictatorships. The whole point being that 20th century dictatorships are very different from prior attempts at authoritarian governments or monarchical rule, right? In that technology and the introduction of the masses, the people, right? So I, I need to explain this basically to understand how does the public sphere work in fascist countries? Well, everyone has to perform the right rituals. They have to goose step. They need to show in the public arena how they are proper Nazis or fascists, right? Well, in a similar kind of way, what you see in colonial Korea is that this whole Mindo discourse, what it sets up is the idea that in late colonial Korea, when the Japanese need to mobilize the Korean population to join the army and work in the factories as sort of forced labor mobilization, what they basically say is that, oh, you know, now the Korean Mindo is high enough to be drafted. Because previously, they were not allowed to join the Japanese army precisely because the argument was your Mindo is too low. But all of a sudden, Koreans are now capable of joining the army, working in the factories, all things that the Japanese previously had tried to restrain or maybe limit or didn't care about. And so in 1940s, what you see is the sort of mass spectacles of Koreans performing Shinto rituals and showing through their public actions that they are now a enlightened people, right? Now they are following all the mass spectacle rituals that other people are doing. So it's a kind of a public shaming that if you don't follow this behavior, you're not really showing that you have the proper awareness or consciousness. And this is exactly the mechanism of mass mobilization under Japanese rule in 1940s. And it's tied to assimilation. The idea is that, okay, previously Koreans, Mindo was too low to assimilate with Japanese people. But now that you have performed the right rituals, you have the right mindset, you believe that the emperor is a divine being for all these reasons, and you show it through your public actions, congratulations, your Mindo has now achieved the right level. And so in many ways, you can question how effective this was. Were Koreans really believing that their Mindo was higher or were they just forced to mimic and follow the Japanese pressure to conform their behavior? But there is this really interesting aspect of this whole Mindo discourse in that ultimately the idea is that by the wartime, the Koreans had actually achieved a certain level of enlightenment. But the problem is the Japanese never introduced the vote to Koreans. They didn't actually introduce hardly any of the welfare provisions and social rights that 
is supposed to go along with proper citizenship. And so, again, the critique being that Bindo is very much a discursive kind of goal, but the practice of colonial rule and the actual investments that the Japanese make in colonial Korea are far behind what you actually need to do to elevate a people's standard of living. And I want to close with, there's a really interesting uh, person that I know. His name is uh, Park Hwan Mu. He's a historian in Korea who has studied the Japanese sources more than anyone else I know. And he always points out that whenever the Japanese talk about Naiji Encho or extending this or assimilating the Koreans, a lot of the colonial officials, they would kind of laugh at that because they'd be like, do you know how much that would cost to actually educate all the Koreans and elevate their level of standard of living, there's no way we're going to be able to afford that, right? And so that's where this whole window issue, right? And assimilation and, and wartime mobilization and citizenship, it's all kind of tied together in just one word. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University. And this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.